now I am trapped in silence, thoughts imprisoned inside me, tongue paralyzed in my frozen mouth. All I have left are my prayers to you, O great God. Why couldn't I have believed? Ah, but I believe now, God. I believe what your angel told me, and I, I praise your name, even if only now in my heart. If ever my voice should return, it will speak nothing but praise to your glory. A son. You have given me a son. All these years in fervent prayer, with faith, but seeming to lose the battle to time. And now, me, an old man, will have a son. And I know your word is truth, for I am filled with joy and gladness, just as the angel said. And not just any son. No wine or strong drink for this one. For he will go in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I have heard these words since I was a boy. As I heard my own father read from the scroll of Malachi, and there can be no mistake, the way is being made for Messiah. And my son will be like Elijah going before him. How could this be? These Roman oppressors will fall and be put to shame, and your people will be restored and rescued from shame and bondage. Our streets will once again be filled with celebration and righteousness. Ah, yes. Yes. Amen and amen. Even now, by your Spirit, I know that there is something even greater from Messiah than simply the triumph of my nation. For it is you, yourself, who will visit us and bring us the true rescue we need. Forgiveness of our sins. Amen. So be it, God of glory. Amen. My youngest son, Brock, and I were driving up to church this morning. Uh, Brock likes to come early with me because Graham, his buddy, Corey and Allie's son, um, is here, and they hang out together. Um, And if you're here early, I apologize because you probably have to correct them about a thousand times when they do mischief that nine and ten-year-old boys do. But we, as we were driving up Lakeshore, um, which is a way that we like to come, I saw, because the leaves are off the tree, the sun off of Lake Michigan. And I recognized this awesome thing that we have this thing that's like very close to us all that we kind of take for granted and don't think about. And God reminded me in that moment, there's this thing that's right next to you that's a wonder of the world, essentially. Like, I don't know if we we realize this, but those dunes that go all up the coast of of Michigan on our side and the 
the fresh water and the size of those, it's a wonder of the world. There's nowhere else like it in the world. But usually when we drive up that way, our view is blocked from it. Then we see it and we recognize, wow, God has done great things. Our passage this morning is from Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. Seems like Luke liked those long, liked to write a lot of stuff. He's a doctor. Um, All the doctors I know, I can't read their writing. They just write really fast on things. Um, But Luke wasn't like that. We're looking at the first chapter, or what we've designated uh, as the first chapter from Luke towards the end of it. And the, the thing I want us to start with, I was, I was having breakfast with Jasper uh, the other morning. We were talking about, what's the point of a sermon introduction? Like, how do you really start off a sermon right? And he made a great point. You want to set everyone who's listening's minds towards the main idea that you have to communicate from the Word of God. And the way I want to do that this morning is to say, why Christmas? Why Christmas? Now, I get it. Uh, if you've been around for more than maybe five or six Christmases in the church, there's a place your brain probably goes when you hear why Christmas, right? And you're like, oh, this guy's going to scold me about Christmas because I like Starbucks fancy drinks and I like gifts and I like Bing Crosby singing in a certain way. And that's not what I'm going to do this morning. Why Christmas? Because I would imagine looking out and knowing many of you and the fact that you are here to hear someone preach from the word of God. You know the reason for Christmas. And there's a tendency maybe for the preacher to go like, well, Jesus had to come because of your sin. And you know what? That's 100% true. 100% true. Jesus came to deal with your sin in a very specific way. But one thing I'd like to start with as we think about why Christmas, why Christmas um, is, is something that's, bigger than that even. So I'm going to open a Bible that I have. This is an old Bible. Heather gave this to me. It says, um, presented to Bjorn Johnson, that's me, by Heather, my wife, on the occasion of loving you, which is cool. Uh, But that's, the date was February 14th, 1999. So some of you did not exist. You're just a good idea in the back of your uh, father's head at that time. February 14th, 1999, Valentine's Day. And I am at a great advantage in this world, but in in the ministry that God has given me as well because of the wife he's given me, who would give me on on a fake holiday like Valentine's Day, not foolish things, but the very thing on which our whole lives are founded, and that's the word of God. And I'm going to read this morning from this Bible. It's the New Living Translation. That's not one we often read from here. From Ephesians 1. And I want you to listen. The New Living Translation is very useful in that it's, it's written to be hearable and readable. So this is Ephesians chapter 1. I think I'm going to start in uh, verse 6. And you'll have to forgive me. I'm also showing my age. Um, so I'm going to put on some glasses to do that. How we praise God. I'm actually starting in verse 3. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we belong to Christ. Long ago, remember that idea, long ago, long ago. Keep that in your head, long ago. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. His unchanging plan, another idea, remember that, plan, long ago, plan. His unchanging plan, his plan has never changed. 
has always been to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And this gave God great pleasure. So we praise God for the wonderful kindness he has poured out on us because we belong to his dearly loved son. He's so rich in kindness that he purchased our freedom through the blood of his son and our sins are forgiven. He has showered us, he has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Now listen to this. So long ago plan, remember those ideas. Verse nine, God's secret plan. When you hear that, that's so cool. God's secret plan. That is a mystery. That is, it wasn't always known to people, but now it is known. It's been revealed. It was a mystery, but it's not any longer. It's not shut off from us. God has shown it to us. So God's secret plan has now been revealed to us. It is a plan centered on Christ. Why Christmas? Remember that it is a plan centered on Christ. Designed long ago according to his good pleasure. And this is his plan. Listen, here's the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and everything on earth. Furthermore, because of Christ, we've received an inheritance from God. For he chose us from the beginning and all things happened just as he decided long ago. That is, if God thinks it, it, it's going to happen. That's how God works. God's purpose... Listen now, God's purpose, the reason for his plan, what he wants from his plan is this, that we who are the first to trust in Christ should praise our glorious God. And now you also have heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us everything he promised, everything he promised, and that he has purchased us to be his own people. This is just one more reason for us to praise our glorious God. We have to remember as we get into the passage this morning that God did not unite all things in Christ so you could be saved. God wants to save you. He does saving through this, but ultimately we have to go into this passage recognizing that he saved you as part of his huge plan that he's always had to unite all things in Christ. So remember that as we go into the passage. Luke 1, 67 through 79. You may know the backstory. Zechariah was a righteous man, but he and his wife Elizabeth could never have kids. They just, they couldn't do it. An angel comes when Zechariah is serving in Jerusalem. He didn't live in Jerusalem, but they would go for a couple weeks out of the year, like on a rotation, and serve in the temple. Zechariah goes. As he's burning incense and performing his duties as a priest, an angel comes and tells him that something is going to happen. And the, the words that the angel, who we know is Gabriel, because he identifies himself, the angel says, you're going to bear a son, you're going to have a son, and he's going to do these things. And Zechariah knew immediately what the angel was talking about in regards to what he would do because the angel was essentially quoting from the prophet Malachi. So look, at, we're actually going to start in verse 64, jumping a little backwards. But there's this idea that God has had this plan long ago is the way that scripture says it, but basically he's always had this plan. And he's always working to carry it out. 
So when God thinks ahead on something, it's not like he knows what's going to happen by, by some outside force, like, predicting what's going to happen. He knows it's going to happen because he's going to make it happen. And this awesome thing, we looked at it with Mary last week. Next week, we're going to look at the shepherds and the angels. And then the week after that, on the 26th, we're going to look at a man named Simeon. There's this awesome thing that happens. And that's when God shows his plan to people that ultimately what happens is they praise him, which is exactly what he wants to happen. So the minute God reveals and opens people's minds that they may understand the truth of the gospel and this plan that he's revealed to them, they can't do anything but praise God. That's their first response. That's what happens with Zechariah. We know that he didn't believe, right? He doubted the angel. And then the angel Gabriel says it. It's this cool phrase. I am the angel Gabriel. I stand before the presence of God. And since you didn't believe me, I'm gonna shut your mouth. And he also, we know from the passage, made him deaf. So he was trapped in silence for this time until his son was born. And then the minute that he names his son John, he writes it on a tablet, his tongue is loosed. And then look at verse 64. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke. What did he do? He blessed God. He said good things about God. And then he prophesied, verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. Blessed be the Lord of God of Israel. This idea of blessed, that word, it's only used in scripture of speaking of how awesome God is. And with it is this idea of praise God, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Praise God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Praise God is what Zechariah is saying, filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying. When Zechariah had had all this time, maybe up to a year, we don't know exactly how long it was, at least the gestation period of a human being he had to think about this in silence. who God is and what God has done and that he always keeps his promises. And then the minute he can finally speak out loud, he praises God. He reviews who God is and what God has done and then he says it out loud. What has God done? I think we could think about those things in our own lives. What has God done for you? What has God done for you? There would be individual examples that we could all speak I bet it would take hours upon hours upon hours if we just went around. I know some of you don't like open mics. If I brought the mic out and said, hey, we're going to talk to some people, some of you would be very uncomfortable. It's funny to watch that as we do that sometimes. (laughs) Open mic. People are like, oh, no. But we testify together to what God has done in our lives. We speak the truth about what God has done. But there's also these things where we have individual examples in our lives, these universal examples of what God has done for all his people. Every one of us. What has God done? Look at verse 68. God cares about his people. God cares about his people. Blessed be the Lord God God of Israel. For, another way you could translate that as because, because he has visited and redeemed his people. One of my favorite Christmas memories in my family is visiting my, uh, my dad's uh, mom, my grandma, Grandma Johnson. And, then, and she lived in the UP. I lived in Chicago, so we would drive up there. I wanted, well, it wasn't close to my, um, in proximity to my grandparents. We always had to drive somewhere to visit them. 
And then my, my mom's side of the family is from the Twin Cities, so Minneapolis, St. Paul. I remember driving up there, often in treacherous conditions. Um, my dad at the wheel like this, and you'd try to talk in the back of this green Impala station wagon. He's like, quiet! Because there's so much stress in driving through the snow. But I have such great memories of visiting them. Um, they've passed on there with Jesus in, in heaven now. But just great memories of visiting, of being far away from someone you love them and then going to be with them. And that's what God has done for us. He's visited us, visited us. We can think of that visitation, but also remembering that he does that because he cares. He took action to visit us. And another way that that word is used throughout the New Testament when we see it is that he looks upon or he looks to and then he goes to. God has visited his people and he's redeemed them. God paid the price. He paid a ransom and he did this because he cares, because he loves his people. When we think about redemption, there's this idea of a price to be paid. You could think of it in terms of a ransom, right? We get that word, a ransom note. You know, you compile it with newspaper clippings to make the the letters a ransom note. Someone's kidnapped. You could think of paying the price to free someone from slavery. You could think of the the price that's paid to get someone out of prison. But God has visited us and redeemed us. He's paid the price, and Zechariah knows that. And I hope this Christmas season, but even right now and as you leave today, you will be deeply encouraged by how much God cares about you, how much God cares about his people. You were enslaved in prison. You've been kidnapped by sin, right? Your own heart, by Satan, an enemy. And yet, God, this holy creator who knows everything and sees everything, looks upon you, a humble servant, just like Jasper taught us last week from Mary, a humble servant, and he goes to you. He sees the plight of your life. He knows that you're harassed by people. He knows that you're harassed by an enemy. He knows that you're enslaved, that there's things that you do, and then after you do them, you're like, oh, why did I do that? Why can't I stop doing that? And seeing that about you, because he cares for you, he redeemed you. He paid the price. And how does he do this? He does it with a king. With a king. Verses, we're going to skip around a little bit. Verses 69 and 71. He's raised up a king to save us. Look at verse 69. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to his father, Abraham. So he's raised up a king to save us. Zechariah uses the idea of a horn of salvation. It sounds very poetically biblical, doesn't it? This idea of a horn of salvation. That's actually something that David said. 
King David long ago said when he was thinking about God saving him. A horn of salvation. So when we, when we hear horn, we should think of some things. We should basically think of strength and a, a powerful weapon. And you could start with a ram. So you Mopar guys are like, yeah, I get it, the ram truck, right? A ram. But it, and you think of these, like these powerful horns of a ram, rams fighting, this picture of strength. But in the end, when you think about a ram, it's also like, well, rams are just like big sheep. So let's take it to the next level, a bull. So picture of like Texas longhorn, not the team, the actual animal, um, really strong. You can picture like these hulking shoulders and like a six-foot beam of horns, of strength. And you're like, yeah, but basically I just want to slaughter that and eat it for dinner. So then you could think of a Cape Water buffalo, like beyond even the steer, this awesome animal, a Cape Water buffalo, just hulking muscle and strength and all focused on these, these horns. And then you're like, yeah, that, I just don't understand that animal. So let's go with rhinoceros. Rhinoceros. Think of the strength of a rhinoceros. So think of your favorite truck. Does anyone in here like trucks? All the men are like, yeah, I kind of like trucks. I know some people like fast cars too. And then you've got your thing, right? You've got the Dodge Ram. You've got uh, Mopar guys, Chevy guys. And then you've got Ford guys. But take your favorite truck. So the, the Ford F9500, whatever. And you have that out on the Serengeti. And then there's a rhinoceros there. If that rhinoceros wants to, he could take the truck out. He could put his horn right through your awesome door with all the electronics in it now, destroy that huge touch screen that's on there now in every truck, and take you out. The idea that I want us to understand is a horn of salvation when that's spoken about. When David said it back in the Old Testament, and now when Zechariah is prophesying it by the Holy Spirit, it's about strength. That God is strong to save you, and there's nothing that can stop God. We're saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who saved us. Consider the source of this, David. You can picture David being on the run. Do you remember that? Do you know stuff about the Old Testament? So David, before, even as he was anointed king, he still had to run. And there were kind of like these two sets of enemies that David faced. They're clear enemies, right? The guys that are like, I'm going to put an arrow through the side of your head, that type of enemy. But then David had uh, this idea of frenemies as well. People he was acquainted with and even in relationships with, but that were out to get him. So David had this in his mind when he's saying, God, you saved me from all this. And we can have the same understanding in our lives, that our king has come to save us, from our enemies and the hands of all, to all who like seek to harm us and hate us. There's this sad pattern that we see in Scripture in regards to a king coming to save. Before David was around, there was this time of judges. So there wasn't a clear leader yet, and people would pop up and lead the nation of Israel. God's people had kind of gone into the land, but it, it wasn't always going great. And there's this pattern over and over again. The people cry out, God raises up a leader. They're okay for a while. Then they fall into this pattern of sin again, over and over and over again. Fortunately, that never happens to us, right? Like, that never happens in our lives, these ups and downs and these patterns. Of course it does. So there's a prophet, Samuel, a judge, Samuel. 
And the elders of Israel go to him and say, you know what? You're about to die because you're old. And your two sons, they're clowns. They're absolute clowns. We don't want anything to do with them. We don't want them to lead us. And then they said this in 1 Samuel 8, 5. You could read it sometime this week. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now maybe now when we hear that, we're like, okay. But Samuel hearing that, he was grieved. And God said to Samuel, hey, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Samuel goes on to explain to the people what a human king is like. You can read it in 1 Samuel 8. Samuel says to the people, you know what's going to happen if you appoint for yourself a human king? If I give you this king that you want so badly, all they're going to do is take from you. He's going to take your, even your children he'll take from you to work in his own house. And then it says in verse 19, but the people refused to obey Meaning Samuel was right in what he said, and they would not listen to Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel was rightly grieved by what the people had asked for. Because Samuel understood that the people had something and someone as a king to do this. They had the things that they wanted. In fact, the very thing that they were looking for, hey, give us a king so that we can be like all the other nations. The very thing that God wanted for his people was not to be like all the other nations. And they're like, we want to be like all the other nations, so give us a king. We need someone to judge us, to rule over us. We need a person to go out before us and fight our battles. This would be like me, I don't know, picture like a small group setting and Heather and I are there and I'm like, you know what I need? I need a beautiful woman to help me. I need a beautiful woman to sometimes check me and tell me when I'm wrong, but to help me when I get weirded out, when I just can't figure things out. If only I had that. What a terrible insult to my wife that would be if that was my attitude. And yet there's this pattern in humanity that we have these things in Christ Jesus. We have these things in a God who loves us, who sends a king to save us. We look at him, we're like, why don't you give me this? Why don't you give me this ruler so that I can be like this in comparison to these other things? Why do we do that? And yet, praise be to God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel because he's raised up a king to save us from our enemies. God has given all these things that we desire. God judges us and rules over us. And he goes out before us and fights our battles. We don't need to appoint all these sets of leaders and depend on all these government things to do this because we have our Savior in Christ Jesus. He's also raised up a king to fulfill his promises. This is where if you're a Bible nerd, any Bible nerds, you are cool if you're a Bible nerd. Awesome. Like you should delight in this part of what Zechariah says. He's raised up a king to fulfill his promises. To fulfill his promises. Verses 70 and then 72 and 73. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies in the hand of all who hate us. And then verses 72 and 73. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. 
Verse 70, he raised up a horn of salvation from the house of his servant David because he made a covenant with David that he was going to do that. He promised David, that's in 2 Samuel 7 that you can read it. And ultimately the promise is this, your throne, David, God is saying this, I think through the prophet Nathan, your throne, David, will be established forever. So from your line, from, from you will be a throne that rules forever. It'll never stop. From your throne, there will always be a ruler. As we read 2 Samuel 7, there's other things along with that. And ultimately, what we see from God's promise, this covenant that he made with David, the promise he made to David, is that he wants to bless David. It's a covenant of blessing. So God made a covenant with David. He also made a covenant with Abraham. Look at verses 72 and 73. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So that that promise that he made to David was in, in some ways a continuation of this deeper promise that he made to Abraham. We can read about that in Genesis 15. Actually, you could go all the way back to Genesis 12 if you wanted. God promises Abraham, at the time Abram, hey, you will have offspring. So he didn't have any kids. You're too old at the time and they just had never had children. And he's like, God, my, my heir is this other guy from this other place. That's just a person in my household. God says, no, you will have a son. And then you'll have more than that as well. And ultimately, as we read through that covenant that God made with Abraham, he says, you're going to have offspring and they will have a land. We don't know what that means now. Some guys, I think you get it. Like, hey, do you want 20 acres of your own land that could be yours? You could do what you want with it and use it. It's a very appealing idea. But in that blessing or that covenant that God makes with Abraham, there's this idea of just pure blessing as well. That God wants nothing but good things for Abraham. And even the entire world will be blessed through Abraham. It's as if God is saying this to Abram. Abram, you are the forerunner of many suffering sons of God who I'm going to call out of darkness into light. But this is going to be a process by where you wander the wilderness of the earth. But here's the awesome thing. As you wander, I will be with you. And eventually, you will have a home forever. I don't want us to miss this Christmas the deepness and certainty that in his covenants, God wants to bless his people. I get it that we are called to be many suffering sons of God, sons and daughters of God, right? We know this. And we often preach in our church, because we preach from the word of God, that that in life in Christ Jesus, there is suffering, That's true. But we cannot forget the blessings of being in Christ Jesus. And the ultimate blessing, this promise that he's given us a home. He's given us a land where we can dwell with him forever. This is even core to the idea of faith. Hebrews 11. Anyone know that passage? It's all about faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
please him. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The point of faith and thinking about what God has done is not simply that you would not be an atheist, that you would recognize that a God exists. The point is that you would know who God is and what God has done, and you would believe and see that God is good. There's this unfortunate pattern, and we see it in both Abraham and David, of man like getting the idea of God's blessings here but then applying their own ways to it. So Abraham believed God, right? That's what scripture says. Abraham believed him and it was credited to him as righteousness. Because Abraham believed, God gave him righteousness. But in Genesis 16, we see what happens when Abraham tries to do it this way. So Genesis 15, there's this covenant promise and it's awesome astounding. The entire world is going to be blessed through, through you. Imagine if God came and said that to you. Unbelievable. The next chapter, Abraham and his wife Sarah, Sarai at the time get together and they're like, all right, we're going to do it this way. Uh, we're obviously barren. We can't have kids. So Abram, just take my servant. That's what Sarah says. And this is the, the most angry I could be at a woman of scripture looking at that. I'm like, what are you doing? That's the most foolish thing ever. Why don't you just believe God and and trust in his ways to do it? Why are you trying to do it your own way and your own man? You're together. God has put you together and you're giving him to someone else? That's foolish and ridiculous. Sorry, a little anger at Sarah there. But they tried to do it their own way. And look at what happened. These two warring factions and nations. But God still honored the promise that he gave to Abram. Same thing kind of happened with David. So this promise is made to David and he gets it. He understands it. He has it right here. But then you look at David's life and there's this pattern of violence so much so that he wasn't even allowed to build a temple. God was like, you're too violent to do that. That's not how I am. And his infidelity, his wandering eyes and his wandering mind basically caused this huge family fracture that caused all this division and eventually, the, the lowering and the, the splitting of the nation of Israel into these two parts. So Abram tried to do it his way along with his wife. Failure. David tried to do it his way. Super duper failure. But in both those cases, God is still fulfilling those promises. God is carrying out that. And you know why? Because in Hebrews 6, it awesomely explains this. And that's, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. When God makes a promise and an oath to something, it always comes true. You can't depend on yourself to carry out God's blessings and promises. Don't even try to do it. Just focus your dependence, your humility, you might say, in looking towards God and say, God, you said that you would bless me. I'm seeking you and I believe that you'll reward me. And I know I have this promise of being with you forever. Trust in that. Don't try to go your own way. Don't try to force God's hand. Trust in him and have faith in him. God has given us in these blessings Purpose, peace, and purity. Look at verses 74 and 75. 
verses 74 and 75. Um, I'm actually taking the end of verse 73 where it says to grant us and putting it on verse 74. And I'm allowed to do that. I can do it because the numbering of verses in the Bible are totally, they're made up. They're smartly made up by smart people, but you can look at these things as whole passages. So don't become obsessed with John, just John 3, 16. For this afternoon, read John 16, and then with that, John 17. And I guarantee you'll be like, whoa! Like God is doing something bigger here than I even thought. So it's, it's awesome. So we're allowed to do that. We're moving, because we're not really moving it. We're just changing where we look at it. Verse 74. God wants to grant us something, grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So God wants to give us these three things, not just three things, but these three things that are being prophesied, purpose, peace, and purity. Purpose to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. There's this idea that we see it, that in creation, uh, God designed human beings to be like him and represent him, but then to, to serve him, to carry out what he desires. We even see that in Ephesians. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared, prepared for us beforehand that we would walk in them. So there's this idea of God wants us to serve him And part of the reason he saves us from our enemies is that we would serve him without fear. Literally, that that end part of verse 74 says that we um, have been saved from the hand of our enemies, that having been saved to serve him, having been saved to serve him. I like how that kind of flows. We have been saved to serve God. There's all kinds of purpose that you could have in your life about the whys behind what you're doing. Like, why do I do this? Or what's driving this? Why do I do family things the way that I do? Why do I do church things the way that I do? Why do I approach career and vocation and parenthood in the ways that I do? And there's this ultimate purpose that all of those things are done in service of God. And God frees us from this fear to give us this purpose of service to him. Look at that. We being delivered from the hands of our enemies, right? You're delivered, might serve him what? Without fear. There's the idea that in your service, you're serving without fear. Peace. You don't have to be afraid because of what God has done, the king that he's given us. You don't have to do it with fighting. You don't have to be unstable. You don't have to be riddled and controlled by anxiety with perfect harmony. And then look at verse 75. We do this in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. I emphasize that God has granted us, that's at the end of verse 73 into 74, for the purpose of we would recognize that God has given us holiness and righteousness. So it's not like because we've been freed from fear, then somehow we can do those things. The idea is that God has granted us holiness and righteousness, and we serve him in those things all our days. Sometimes you look at prophecies, you're like, that's great. I intellectually get that, but what do I do do with that, right? To grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God does not leave us hanging in those things. Let's look at, you can turn there, Philippians 1.27. Philippians 1.27 
Because it's this awesome thing. And God has really showed me personally this over the past two years. Something about his church and his people. And having been saved to serve him. So it says this. Only let, this is Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. There's an idea that we are called to live in holiness and righteousness because that is what we have in Christ Jesus. And that produces peace and unity and harmony and togetherness. And the world looks on that, the fact that God has called us to be different and says, the way I'm living now, that's going to destroy me. I want to live in that way. I want to live according to peace and harmony and without fear. God has given us peace and security has taken fear away from our lives, not that we would spend it on our own passions or that we could live our lives according to the way that we want. He would do it so that we could live according to the worthiness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God gives us purpose, peace, and purity, all those things we have in our king. And he makes things ready. Look at verse 76. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. A prophet in this sense, when it's being used here, is all about being a speaker or a spokesperson for God. This is yet another place where it's confirmed that John the Baptist is the Elijah that the prophets spoke of. So in Isaiah 40, there's a reference to this. And in Malachi, a little bit in chapter 3, in Malachi chapter 4, it's talking about someone who's going to go before the Lord. A voice crying in the wilderness, Isaiah said. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And then Malachi the prophet. This is the last thing in the Old Testament. Malachi says this. Behold, obviously God is saying it. Malachi is the spokesperson communicating. Behold, look. That's what behold means. Look, hey, look. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So there's two things that John the Baptist is doing to bear witness to Christ who's coming, to go ahead of him, prepare his ways. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So repentance, that is turn away from your sins. And John, the, that's well known. It's said all throughout. You can see it in every one of the Gospels. But then also this idea of reconciliation. He'll turn the hearts. What he says will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So John the Baptist is coming to prepare the way for the Lord. And he does it through a message of repentance. Turn away from your sins and reconciliation. That is, you need things in your life to be restored. And John the Baptist ultimately does this so that we would know God is using John the Baptist to communicate this so that we would know that we need forgiveness of our sins. Verse 77, the prophet who's going forth, a voice in the wilderness, 
to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. The Greek people, so Luke was writing in ancient Greek, Koine common Greek, right? The Greek people loved, loved this idea of knowledge. That was their, that was their jam. Do kids still say that? No, they're, they're, those kids are like, no one says that. Okay, that was their thing, right? They loved knowledge. It was all about the accumulation of knowledge. But it wasn't just facts. It was that you learn from a teacher so that you can experience these things too. And the message, the thing that that John was proclaiming was that you need to know this, that you need forgiveness of your sins. What do you need in your life? As you look at the first part of what Zechariah was prophesying, it's really clear to, to to me as I read it at least, I don't know about you, that Zechariah was like, I'm oppressed and these Roman people are messing with my people and they need to be destroyed. So there's this idea of the, like this national thing where God, you made this promise to your nation. Like, when are you going to fulfill it? And now you have in this Messiah. And you're going to shame our enemies and you're going to put them down and put them in their place. And that's pretty awesome. But as we get into the, the deepness of verse 77, there's this understanding of you have a bigger problem in your life than simply people harassing you and oppressing you and imprisoning you. A much deeper problem. And that's that you need forgiveness of your sins. John the Baptist came to give knowledge of that to the people. It's weird in church culture now when we talk about sin. It's uncomfortable. And there's this kind of, I don't know, side way to approach it. It's like, hey, all I need to do is talk about Jesus. And that'd be fine. I just focus on Jesus. That's good. We want to focus on the Lord. But there's a fact that we do have to think about and consider our sins. And then we recognize when I have sins and they need to be dealt with, what do I do? I turn away from those sins. Do I have anywhere to turn? Yes, you do. You have Jesus Christ to turn to for forgiveness of your sins. So we have to remember that our greatest need is not simply or exclusively to be rescued from our enemies. You might say that's to be rescued from ourselves. The fact that our hearts are darkened and wicked. And when left to ourselves, we're stuck in darkness. We have to be released from our sins. And look at how God does this. Look at in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. God's tender mercy brings us the light who pierces the darkness and guides us to peace. We can't forget, maybe we'll never fully understand it, but we always have to focus on it, the love of God for his people. God has tender mercy. The way that they wrote about it at this time, you could, you could literally translate it. This isn't a good way to think of it, except it gives you a good word picture. The, the gut, the bowels, the spleen of God's mercy. And that is the fact that God's tender mercy is like this. 
dads here, dads and moms, raise your hand. I see many of you. That's awesome. I don't mean to exclude you if you don't have children. I just, you'll get this. I remember bringing Hunter home. Hunter is now 12. He's a solid basketball player. Love watching him play basketball. He's a track athlete, right? He does long jump. I love Hunter. I remember bringing him home in the car seat, right? They train you in the hospital how to like do the car seat. And I'm like, I got to do it right. I don't want my, this all rests on me. So like I'm carrying him around like a robot, like I'm going to drop this kid and it'll be all my fault. Bring him home. And Heather and I basically set him right in the car seat, right inside the door. And we just stand there and look at him. We're like, what do we do now? And over and over again, as I've watched Hunter grow up, there are times that I look at him and struggles that he faces, joys that he has, ways that he grows, things that he picks up and understands. And you just feel it right here. And there's not words, and you're like, oh, God, it's so awesome. That's like, that's like 180th of a percent of an understanding of God's tender mercy. God's tender mercy, the, the bowels, the all oh, of his compassion, of his mercy, are an a- aspect of his character. And God's character, who he is, causes him to do things. That's what this passage is saying. His tender mercy brings us the light. Why did God send Jesus? Why did God send the king? Because he looks at us and he's like, you need a king. And you want one, but you don't get it. You want a dumb human king. I'm going to give you this awesome king. Because I love you and I care about you. Tender mercy. There's also this cool thing. You can look at the opposite of tender mercy to understand what God is not. Right? If God has this character that is tender mercy affection and compassion. The opposite of that would be what God is not. What's the opposite of tender mercy? Hard and cruel. We even see that in parables that Jesus tells when people don't understand the master. They're like, he's hard and cruel. Oh, that's not true of God. God is not hard and cruel. Uh, Uncaring and aloof. Aloof is a great word. I, you can't really give a definition for it, but you just know what it is. Like, yeah, like I don't want to engage with you. Like, you ever like meet someone and get to know them a little bit, and you like you kind of want to be friends with them. I'm, I'm showing my soul here, though, so give me some grace. And you're like, I'd like to be friends with that person. I think they're cool. We think alike, and it's pretty awesome. And then you kind of make the step in a relationship. I'm not talking about dating. I'm just talking about being friends with someone. And you like approach them, and they're like. And you get the sense, like, this person just thinks I'm really weird. And they don't want to have anything to do with me. They're uncaring and aloof. And that's not the way that God is. God's not like, ah. It's not how God approaches you. Tender mercy, the opposite of that is also distant and eye-rolling. Distant and eye-rolling. So people were like, ah, just far away. And then... I see this at work sometimes. We're on all these screens and calls and stuff. I work from my basement by way of a computer and I interact with people that are in like digital representations of human beings. It's very strange over the past couple of years. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. But 
Like you catch someone because they forget that they're on camera. So you have this idea and you're like, this is a great idea. And then you say it and you can see the person is like. <laughs> Not that that ever happens to me, like other people, of course. That's not the way God is. God's not far away. When you struggle, God doesn't roll his eyes at you like, you fool. This is the 20th time we've gone over this. That's not the way that God is. God is tender and filled with mercy. And it causes him, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. God's character, who he is, causes him and drives him to send the light from heaven who pierces the darkness and guides us to peace. Sermon bonus points. What is, when we talk about light in scripture, when you see that, what does light stand for? Someone shout it out. Be brave. Don't worry. It's all right. We're family here. Light equals, come on, someone say it. You know it because Jesus, yeah, he's the light of the world. This aspect, it starts with the word T, the next letter. Yes, truth. Someone said it. That's it. Light equals truth. Especially when you read the books of wisdom. So Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, when they're talking about light, it's all about truth. So this idea of Jesus being the dawn or the morning from on high, it's the idea that God is coming himself from heaven. He's bringing truth. Now for some of us, truth is like, ah, truth is what I deal in, Right? Truth is a collection of facts by which I can prove or disprove things. And that's true. But there's the idea of Jesus being the truth and then things that are true, measurable, understandable. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is truth. And he came to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide us in the way of peace. To guide us in the way of peace. What does peace mean? I want you to think about it. Set a definition for yourself in your own head. I'm not saying to live in a relative world where you get to decide everything. I'm just saying, how do you understand peace to be? What is peace? What would peace look like? You know what peace doesn't look like? I'm just giving like a simple example to start with. So we go to a family's house and all the cousins are together between the ages of what? Uh, Now like, I can't remember the ages, but it's very overwhelming um, at this point. So that's not, it's awesome and it's fun, but that's not peaceful. When you're there for Christmas and all the kids want to do is open the presents. And they ask you every three minutes, when are we going to open the presents? And I'm like, I'm trying to eat my sausage here. <laughs> and then they feed off each other. And it's like this pure chaos. That's not peace to me. What's peace is when the kids all go to bed. I'm sitting there with Heather, and it's like, oh. And there is Bing Crosby playing on the electronic device that plays music. Peace. I think also, kind of a harder example, when we get together on the holidays, sometimes you're with people that if you were honest, right, if you had three things of eggnog and were speaking the truth, you would, you would say, I really don't want to be with these people. They stress me out. We have different values, different ways of approaching things. There's not peace. Maybe they've hurt you. 
Maybe they've spoken against you, maybe to your face. And there you are celebrating Christmas together. Maybe there's relationships within your close family. Maybe your relationship with your spouse. Maybe there's divorce that's part of your past or you're going through that right now. And none of that feels like peace. But Jesus came to give light. That is truth. He is truth that brings peace. The light pierces the darkness. That is, it does away with the darkness. The darkness cannot overcome it. Promise of scripture guaranteed to be true and guides us to peace. When the ancient Greeks wrote about peace, there was this idea of wholeness. Everything's tied together. There's not anything that's missing. I want to encourage you as you celebrate Christmas to really celebrate it. So I'm not going to be the preacher guy that lambasts you and said, don't get the Starbucks drink. Don't open the gifts. I want you to do those things. But as you do it, I also want you to remember this. That's all part of this huge plan that long ago, that is eternity past, God established. And you are blessed in this. Whether you know it or not right now, God is giving you a message from his word that is truth, that is light. You don't have to be in darkness. You don't have to feel like you're in the valley of the shadow of death. Because he's given you light to guide us in the way of peace. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word. Sanctify us in your word. Your word is truth. I know many of the people who are listening to this. Some of them I don't. Um, But I, I have a prayer for them that as they face a holiday season, that they could do it with joy and peace. Pray that when they face the times of not wanting to be with people and having to be with them, that you could turn their hearts, that they would see it as an opportunity of getting to be with people to speak your truth. Pray for those specifically that have lost loved ones in a recent enough time where that still stings and hurts And there's a great and deep missing of people that's brought about by the nostalgia and togetherness of this season. That God, you would work in their hearts and that your truth and light would bring them out of darkness. Knowing that there's people that aren't replaceable in our lives, but you are indeed with us in our times of wilderness. We need your help, Father, but thank you that you have indeed given it to us and promised to be with us and indeed to do so and that we have a promise to be with you forever. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, sometimes we hear a message like this and the response is really to praise God. That was the first point of the sermon, right? Praise God, praise God. And then we're like, all right, I got this. I'm supposed to praise God. Like, I'm gonna praise God now. And there's musicians on the stage, so it's like, perfect setup, perfect setup to praise God. But there's something in our hearts where it's like, I don't know if, I don't know if I can do that right now, God. I don't know if I'm wired that way to praise God. Like, I don't, I don't want to just do this because Corey wants me to sing a certain way or to raise my hands. We can think back to how God worked through his people through all the ages that he showed us something 
And when we understand that, what's produced in us is praise. So if you're approaching this time now where we're going to sing praise to God and celebrate who God is and what God has done, and you're like, God, I just ain't feeling it. That's okay. The result is not to fake it or to try to drum something up by which you might worship in a certain way to meet certain cultural standards. The solution is to look at who God is and what God has done. He's given us a king to save us. He gives us purpose. He gives us peace. He gives us purity in our lives. All that we might serve him without fear. He loves us so much. He has this tender mercy towards us that he gave us the light and it pierces the darkness of our lives brings us out of that and guides us in peace. Don't worry about what comes next. Worry about who God is and what God has done. Amen.